right, so uh, let's get going with our message this evening. Uh, tonight is February 13th, guys. That's a big warning right there. Tonight is February 13th. Did y'all hear that? Yeah. Dude, what's after February 13th? Okay, it's the 14th. Tonight is February 13th. It is 2013. Our message tonight is called New Dimensions. And uh, we want to hop right into it. So in this message, New Dimensions, the first thing I want to show you is what we learned in kindergarten, right? The very first thing that you did in kindergarten is you had to put shapes into, uh, into special places, right? And what is this one called? Somebody help me. It's a circle. And you can't shove a circle into a rectangular hole, and you cannot shove a rectangle into a circular hole. These are two-dimensional shapes. And they're easy to understand. They're easy to draw. No matter what you do, with these, even a child can reproduce them, right? Not all shapes are that way. Not everything in our world is this simple. Many of our biblical constructs have taken very complex things and tried to shove them into a two-dimensional description. And I would like to tell you tonight that our God is bigger than that. So, this led me to a book. This book is called Flatland. Uh, I put it on the screen so that you could write it down if you wanted to read it. It was written in 1880 by Edwin Abbott. He is a British headmaster, and he was a lover of God. And he wrote from the standpoint of if we were trapped in a two-dimensional world, if all you could experience was length and width, if there was no depth or height, how would you experience the world? And if somebody came from a three-dimensional world and was trying to interact with you, what would that look like? Now, obviously, he's drawing on an illusion. He's trying to get you to think about what if there is more than we are currently experiencing? And what if a being from that place that we're going to call more was trying to interact with you? What would that look like? And he had the most amazing discussions in this book. It's only 84 pages. I give it to you free as a PDF. In fact, I'll, I'll place it online so you can download it with this message if you would like. One of the things that he does in this book, Flatland, is he covers something called a ring experience. He said, I want you to imagine that you're trapped on a pane, a big white board, if you will. And this is called Flatland. It's got borders. Those borders are all there is in Flatland. And you can't experience death. And we were going to take a wedding ring and from outside of Flatland, try to introduce it right into Flatland. Well, the first part that would hit Flatland would appear as a dot. And then as it began to pass through, more dots and then maybe a line. And then as you got to the sides of the ring, two lines. And then those lines would come closer and closer together, and then another dot, and then it would be gone. This led to an idea. It would, it would expose your worldview if you were standing there in Flatland trying to understand what had just happened. A reductionist worldview would simply say, if I can test it, if I can reproduce it, if I can put it in a lab or take a photo of it, I will believe in that. Outside of that, I will not. But an escalationist, somebody who says, there's more, it's increasing, there has to be more, might say, those dots appeared at different times. And you saw dot, dot, line, line, dot, dot, and then it was gone. But I feel like there was something more significant 
than just the random appearance of dots. Imagine if somebody tried to pass their hand through that. Your fingers are different lengths so that the dots would arrive at that pane at different times. There are different thicknesses so they would be of different sizes. The reductionist would say they're unrelated. They, how could you see any coincidence in this? They're all different sizes. They appeared at different times. They left at different times. But somebody who is an escalationist, somebody who sensed more might say, I don't know. It feels like, like there's something more to it than that. I kind of trust that something is happening. I can feel it. Or I, I sense the presence of something more. And this really breaks down human history. Those that said, all I can see is all there is. And those who innately had eternity in their hearts and said, there has to be something more. This is the subject matter of the book. He writes from someone who was in a three-dimensional world who was placed in a two-dimensional world and how confining it was. It'd be a little bit like moving into a church that did not believe that God moved in our society today. When we look at these kind of things, we tend to see things as either or or. You are either a rectangle or you are a circle. If you're a rectangle, you're four times as right as everyone else. If you're a circle, you're connected with the very planet itself, right? I mean, it all goes around, Curtis. We could argue. The circle could say, hey, rectangle, you're dangerously close to becoming a square, man. And the rectangle could look and say, yeah, but you guys in the circle don't do anything but smoke. You know, there could be all kind of arguments over this. I don't know how that would happen. But I know that many of our religious arguments that people have fought and bled over, killed each other over, had to do with, is it a rectangle or is it a square? What if it's both and, and not either or? When you add a dimension, when you move from two dimensions, when you add length and width to height or depth, you can have something else that's not two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional, and this has both a rectangle and it has a circle in it. And we call it a cylinder. All of us know this from the time we're children. This is neither either or, it is both and. It involves both. You can see that as we move forward with that kind of thing, we're having a quest for a 3D experience. In fact, today, if you go to a movie, and I don't, but I know many of you do, you pay one price for, for a regular feature. You pay a second price for an IMAX feature. And there is yet an even more exorbitant extraction for you for the IMAX 3D. What is the difference in the IMAX 3D? It has a depth. It comes off of the screen and out at you. It's neither either or, and it becomes both and. It's a way to interact with all of your senses. I believe that the Bible is supposed to interact with all of our senses, and that it's not an either or, it's often both and. This is not liberal preaching, I promise. We're going to get into it. It, it couldn't be any more beautiful. But sometimes our limited capacity, our childlike, schoolboyish thoughts about the scripture have limited God's in way, God in ways that he didn't intend. This is called the tesseract, by the way, and you can build it, and it does work this way. As soon as you add movement to a 3D object, it begins to kind of twist your mind, doesn't it? 
Is there anybody here that would like to take that off the screen and build that model immediately? How would you describe it? You know, is it, is it a trapezoid? Is it a square? Well, it would depend upon your perspective at any moment in time, wouldn't it? Is it possible for somebody to say it contains a trapezoid, another a square, and another say, I see circular motion in it, and all be right? Oh my goodness, now maybe we're beginning to get to our understanding of our God. Let us move forward. The fourth dimension, a 4D experience. Now this is a quote from Pastor Steve Bartlett. <coughs> Building on the Rock, Lesson 11, the fourth dimension, part one. If I can find something that is good, I will steal it and appropriate it for our use. Amen. Now, we intend to steal most of these lessons. As I look at them, I think they're fantastic. He said, the plane of existence where God dwells, which exists a greater reality than the three-dimensional plane that we are familiar with. The three dimensions of physical reality are contained in the greater plane or realm of the spirit. This is a way to say our world is encompassed enveloped in the truer reality. Every once in a while, someone will be moved by the Spirit and they get a glimpse, what I would call a higher view, just beyond this world. Listen to the way that Paul said it about these glimpses. He wanted us to move beyond rectangles and squares. He said, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, rectangles and squares. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We're looking for a glimpse, something more mature. By the way, the Bible is your guide for life. Yes, somebody hold up your Bible. Oh my goodness. The Word of God. Verbal plenary inspiration. I mean, this is the ultimate revelation. If we turn off the lights in here, how many of you can find your way out of the room? What if I gave you a diagram of the room, but the lights are off? Those of you that think the Word of God is all you need are like men standing in the dark holding the plants. I like the way Smith Wigglesworth said it. He said, some of you like to read your Bibles in Greek. Others like to read your Bibles in Hebrew. I like to read mine in the Holy Ghost. You do not have the ability to understand what you're reading outside of the Holy Spirit. And how would you know what to apply? Maybe this is one of the reasons that our doctrinal wars are fought in the places that they are. We don't even know how to apply the truth that we're reading. Have you ever played scripture roulette? Have you just opened it? Oh Lord, give me a word. Judas hung himself. That can't be the Lord. So we close it. We open it. Jesus wept. What are you saying to me, Lord? Nothing. Nothing. You're being foolish. He didn't intend for you to play scripture roulette. He intended you to be led by a heavenly navigator through a very perfect word. Having the plans to a building does not mean you can navigate that building. You need sight. You need perception. What therapists call proprioception. 
You need to know where you are in time and space. How do you know that a word applies to you? How do you know that that very specific word spoken to a specific people group at a specific time applies to you? You have to know it by the Holy Ghost. Let's move forward. A higher view. You can see that in this slide, a little boy has climbed up on top of a street lamp. Why? Because he's vertically challenged. He can't see. You ever been to a, a football game as a little kid? It's butts and backs. And everybody cheers and you can vaguely understand that something is happening. But it's not till somebody, come here again. It's not till somebody grabs you and gives you a higher view than you had that you understand what is actually occurring. And boy, it is beautiful when daddy puts you on his shoulders and for a little bit you see as daddy sees. This is why we're trying to walk in the Spirit. This is what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to get close enough to our Father that we can see what Daddy sees. Amen. My goodness, you say, well, He's written for us everything that we need to know. I do not intend to denigrate the Word of God. Fred Hall is a bit of a mathematician. I happen to have had an affection for his daughter for many years now. She may know that her daddy knew calculus, that her daddy could do trig. All of that knowledge did not help her at all. And even when he tried to explain it to her, it just did not reside inside of her. Can anybody relate to that, or are you all mathematicians? Her father was more than willing to tell her. Her father had mastered it. But she could not. It would take a transplant of his spirit into her to make her a mathematician. Now she has giftings he doesn't have. Amen, I married her. <laughs> Having said that, it takes a transplant of our Father's spirit right into us for us to be able to do what he does, to see what he sees. We need the higher view. Well, we're on that topic. I've heard some good preaching lately. The only thing that I like more than teaching you is being taught by you. My whole heart's desire is to be a lifelong student of the Word. And not long ago, I heard a message that featured Hebrews 11. So turn to Hebrews 11, and you'll be in verse 27. Tell me when you're there. 11, 27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Am I the only one that finds that a paradoxical statement? He perceived something that others cannot perceive. Why? His heavenly father gave him the higher view. In that moment, it was as if he was seated on God's shoulders, seeing what God saw. He knew God's will, and he had the strength from God to carry it out. This is not only having a diagram of the building, but it's as if someone turned on the lights and gave you a lighted runway. Amen. Now, I love my brothers and sisters that think that they have gotten all of the Holy Ghost that they'll ever need, but your own life proves that that is not true. 
every time we have the inability to carry out God's word, it shows us that we need a heavenly anointing. We need a higher view. Every time we miss an opportunity, every time that it's the Lord's will for us to do something and we do not carry it out, we need that higher view. I want it. And I'm going to have it. Because Jesus has made a way for me to get it. Amen. Amen. I couldn't make the way. He made the way. I want the Holy Ghost view. By the way, while we're in Hebrews 11, let's remind ourselves of a familiar scripture. Now faith or trust is being sure of what we hope for and certain of you may not see it with your natural eye and yet somehow or another you sense it. Somehow or another you feel it. Somehow or another you begin to place your trust in it. Standing in Platonia, you sense a dimension that is beyond your grasp and it feels as real to you as what you can see. Someone else may be saying, how did you hear from God? Did you get a tape recording? What did it look like? What did it sound like? If I can't reproduce it in a lab, I don't believe that it happened. But to the man with the experience, it's no longer an argument. It has become a reality in your very soul. This happens by the power of the Holy Ghost. Come on, say, I need the Holy Ghost. I need the Holy Ghost. You cannot have him except by the way of Jesus. He came to magnify Jesus. He came to remind you of Jesus. He came so that you can carry out the work of Jesus and be like Jesus. We will never exalt the Holy Spirit above Jesus because the Holy Spirit would not allow it or want that. But as we're drenched in the Holy Ghost, Jesus is always magnified. Let us move to our present reality. What an interesting idea. When you look in front of you right now, Steve, you see the back of Judah's head. A nearly perfect young man. If he were only a few years older and have a beard, you know, he would be there. Right. When you look around, you, you see bricks and mortar. But this is not our reality. Bricks and mortar and the air that you're breathing, it is not your reality. Turn with me to 2 Kings. I want to talk to you about your reality. Say there when you're there. When you get to 2 Kings, go to the 6th chapter. In the 6th chapter, scan your finger down until you hit the 8th verse. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place. Because the Armenians are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place and indicated by the man of God, time and again, Elijah warned the king. So that he was on his guard in such places. Is there any possible way to explain that? Well, it could be that there's a mole. It could be that there is a spy. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? The king of Aram was not a stupid man. 
to be telling Elijah about our movements. How else could he possibly know? See, he lives in Flatonia. He lives in Flatland. And there's only a couple possibilities to him. Someone had to go and tell him what we're doing or he had to be here and see what we're doing. These are the only possibilities. And since we can't see him here, one of you must have gone there. But there's a whole other realm that this king cannot see. Now I understand that the king of Aram can't see it. But there's a young man named Gehazi here who also cannot see it. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elijah the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Elijah walked around with an awareness that even those standing next to him did not have. You understand that the king of Aram didn't have it. He's, he's a pagan. He's a foreigner. But this man is standing next to the prophet of God, God's finger on the earth. He's one of God's chosen people. He's received the oracles from on high. And having those oracles, being in that covenant, and being called the child of God still does not allow him to see without the power of the Holy Ghost what Elijah can see. It is not enough to hold your King James Bible in your hand. It is not enough to have prayed a prayer at an altar. You need the enlightenment that comes by the Holy Spirit. Or you cannot even understand the oracles you have been given. But when the power of the Holy Ghost comes upon you. You will see things no one else sees. You will do things no one else does. You will know things that no one else knows. When the servant of the man of God got up, he whines and says, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asks. That's first. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Isn't it amazing the number of times for the Holy Ghost to move in someone's life, for God to be glorified in someone's life, the first thing that must go is fear. I can't tell you the book of Deuteronomy says ten times alone. Just that book says, do not be afraid. Fear is the enemy of your faith. Fear that you will not succeed. Fear that you will fail. Fear that. Fear, fear, fear. One popular Bible teacher said, fear is false evidence that appears to you to be real. But it is false. It doesn't take into account that there's a dimension beyond the dimension that you see. It doesn't take into account that we're not standing in Flatonia. You know, just because a man says, if I can only prove it in a lab, then it's real. Doesn't mean that that's all that is real. It just means that that man has chosen to live in a smaller world than you've chosen to live in. Now they may appear to be more rational. They may appear to be more educated. But in reality, they're simply standing in a smaller space than you have chosen to stand. Amen. You can be sincere. You can sincerely believe that you can walk through that because you can see through the foyer. But you can be sincerely deluded. When you walk into the pane of glass, you will realize there was something there you could not see. 
How many times does it take us bumping up against a heavenly boundary before we realize that this is not all there is? There's an escalation going on, a progressive revelation of God's will in our lives. He's teaching us, for Paul, this looked like this. Saul, Paulus of Tarsus, how long will you kick against the goads? He's bumping into heavenly boundary. He's bumping into glass that he couldn't see, and it's being revealed to him. There is another reality that is steering my presence, steering my path. This is always easier to see in the rearview mirror. But the great man of God, by the power of the Holy Ghost, saw it in advance. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. How did he know this? And Elijah prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Stop for a second. He did not pray, O oh Lord, send angels. He did not pray, O oh Lord, send chariots. He did not pray, O oh Lord, where are the horsemen of heaven? Because he knew they were there. As surely as he knew, there was air in the environment. What do you know is here that you cannot see? What do you know? Have you read your word? Do you know that this room is necessarily filled with angels? Do you know that? Do you know that immediately outside of this room, the atmosphere is necessarily filled with opposition? Do you know that there is a heavenly priesthood, a Melchizedek order of which Jesus is the head? Do you know that there are seraphim, there are cherubim, there are not just angels, but there are archangels. There are elders. There are living creatures. There are creatures covered with eyes. There is an entire heavenly hierarchy. And we walk around and act like it doesn't exist. And every once in a while, some crazy preacher will have seen it. Some crazy preacher's wife will have been there. Every once in a while, someone will come and grab you and shake you by the shoulders and say, wake up! That is real! It is as real as here. In fact, it's more so. And for a little while, the church gets a warm, fuzzy experience. But like a man who looked at his face in the mirror and walked away and forgot what he looked like, we quickly slip back into the reality that we see. We are not called to live like that. You are called to have a heavenly awareness that as a message taught us about poverty of spirit, you do not have unless it's given to you from heaven. Mm -hmm. Now all of us have some awarenesses, lost, saved, doesn't matter. We call them five senses. You can see and you can smell and you can touch and you can taste. There may even be some even for lost people that we've not recognized because we're inherently spiritual. Even a lost person, if you're staring at them, for whatever reason, turns and looks at you. Have you ever noticed this in a crowd? Yeah. Or stand up, Joe. <clears throat> I haven't made a sound. But when I'm standing close to Joel, he knows it, doesn't he? I don't know how we know these things, but we do. I want to tell you, though, that there are some things that no one can know. Unless the Holy Ghost reveals it. And you need to know those things. 
You need to. Only God could know whether this man will turn around. Only God could know if the Holy Spirit is dealing with his heart. Only God could know what the future for his life holds. And you must know. Or how can you prepare him? How can you encourage him? How can you share what God wants to share with him? Only the Spirit of God searches the mind and heart of God and reveals it to man. We must have the Spirit. Or else we are intellectual Christians that are as impotent as a man locked in this room in the dark, holding the plans to the building. I love the Word of God. It was meant to direct you. It was meant to guide you. But it takes a heavenly navigator for you to understand it and use it. The church at Rome tried to convince us that they alone held all truth. They alone had the power to interpret. And history proved them liars. But the Holy Ghost does have alone the power to interpret. The power to guide you. Let us look at a beautiful picture. This is an iridescent glory of a nearby helix nebula. Before just now, have you ever seen it? Steve has seen it. Where did you see it, Steve? It's the eye of God. Oh my goodness, they call this the eye of God. Did you know that it's been there since before you were born? Did you know that it has been there for a thousand years? It's been there for thousands upon thousands of years, but some of you just became aware of it. Does that mean that it did not exist before? It was there before you were aware of it, and it will be there long after you were gone. It's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, the glory of God is much like this nebula. Because you just became aware of it doesn't mean that it was not there prior. Let's look at Mark 9 and see what this has to do with our message. Tell me when you're in Luke 9. Have I bored you? No. Are you sleepy? I feel like I'm preaching in the shower, Steve. I can hear it off the bat. I love it, by the way. Uh, I'm going to dream tonight that we get to do this all day, every day. If there were a rapture, I would be in it right now. I'm going to have to wait on the resurrection, huh? Here comes 928. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, say fully awake. Fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men standing with them. Did Jesus not have glory before they were awake? No, he had it. He had all the glory of God. He's the one and only. He was at the Father's side. He is the righteousness of God. I assure you he had glory. As much as I can assure you that that nebula existed before you saw its glory. What changed then? The same thing that happened with Gehazi's eyes 
with Elisha. Something in the man changed. The Holy Ghost allowed them to see what always is, always has been, and always will be. But they were suddenly aware of it. Oh, those white garments are the righteous acts of the saints. Did Jesus suddenly obtain righteous acts? If he was with the Father in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He did not suddenly obtain this glory on the mountain. In fact, Jesus announced it in advance, and He didn't say, in a few days, I will obtain glory. He said, in a few days, you will see the Son of Man in the kingdom. Amen. Friends, we don't need to pray for glory to arrive. We don't need to pray for the Holy Ghost to arrive. We don't need to pray for the will of God to arrive. The kingdom is upon us. Amen. We need to pray that we are fully awake. We need to pray that we wake to the reality that is around us. We need to stop living in flatland and say there is more. And quit allowing our worldview to be reduced to only what you can see, taste, and touch. <coughs> what are you living for? Your next meal? What are you living for? A great retirement. What is it that you're living for? Because I'm here to tell you there is more. With an escalating plan of God. Just like they marched around Jericho seven days. And on the seventh day they marched around seven times. The things of God are escalating. It's being revealed to holy men who are seeking his face by the power of the Holy Ghost. But to the rest of the world they were going eating and drinking and marrying. Until the flood washes them away. But this time it will not be water friends. It will be fire. Second Peter has declared it. Oh my goodness, I do not want to be chaff that is burned up. I want with all of my heart to recognize the signs of our times. This brings us to shadows and copies. It's important that we know this. Please turn with me to Hebrews 8. Oh, it's on your screen. Here comes the fifth verse. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It was very important that what Moses saw, he transcribed on earth. How much more so than what you hear from heaven you perform on the earth. How much more so that the man who is in heaven of whom you bear his image being formed in you. That you follow his pattern, his way of life, his teaching. I'd like to tell you that God has always used patterns on earth to teach people. Around the world there is what is known as a Greek zodiac. It's amazing that Greek zodiac was not just Greek. Almost the entire world's population has divided the stars into 12 groupings. In almost every language, no matter what the language is, at least one of those groupings of stars relates to their word for virgin, like Virgo. It's almost as if God was speaking a message through the creation that said, I dwell in the starry realm surrounded by 12 groupings. But is this the only place that he dwelt? Turn with me to Numbers 2.
Tell me when you're there. Yeah. Two of you were there. Where did the rest of you go? Yeah. Come on, help me out. Yeah. Numbers 2. The Lord said to Moshe and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard. Oh, that's a message in and of itself. With the banners of his family. On the east towards the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. Look at verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 10. On the south will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. Verse 18. On the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim under their standard. Verse 25. On the north will be the divisions of the camp of Dan under their standard. Some years ago, I began to map this out. I drew what is up here. I defined the names of the leaders of the tribe. I looked at who was encamped with them, and I noticed that God surrounded the cherubim, that he sits enthroned upon with a grouping of twelve. I noticed that if you read them in the order that he gave them, when we look at Judah in the east, it says, may he be praised. That's what Judah means. When we look at Reuben in the south, behold the sun, Ephraim in the west, doubly blessed. Dan in the north, he that judges comes. Even the arrangement of the tribes spoke a message. There's a heavenly reality and a heavenly messenger, and he is about to arrive. Every time Israel moved, they were expressing something. But there's something even more beautiful than that. Turn to Revelation 4. In the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. Also in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. But let's look at Revelation. Starting in verse 6. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass. Clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. That is as real as that suburban sitting right outside. That is as real as the chair that you were sitting in. That is reality that existed before this one was even created. And yet we act like it doesn't exist. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings covered with eyes. What a bizarre statement. Is this all just filler? Of course, when you look at the standard of Judah, when you look at their ancestral garments, when you look at the standard that they camp under, you find out that it is a lion. When you look at the ancestral standard of Reuben, you find out it is a man's face. When you look at the ancestral standard of Ephraim, you find out it is an ox, and of Dan that it is an eagle. What could the Lord have been saying, friends? I put something on the earth to show you I'm not just enthroned in the heavens. The heavens are among you and you need to wake to the reality. My throne is right here. Amen. Why was it so important that when the Lord stopped the cloud, the people stopped? Why was it so important that when the Lord moved the cloud, the people moved? They were the earthly representation of a heavenly glory that they were becoming aware of, but the world was yet to see. Could there be any better picture of why you must be led by the Spirit to be a son of God? 
What happens if you break camp and go where you want to go? We're misrepresenting the throne of God. Oh my goodness. God had a mobile throne. And what did He choose? People's shoulders. The best people. No. The smallest, the fewest of all the people. He chose humble, ordinary people. And He put His presence on them. And chose them to be the standard for the whole world to learn about a reality that was just beyond what their eyes could see. Let me ask you, friends, is he trying to hide his presence from everyone? No, he puts it everywhere. But it takes the power of the Holy Ghost to see it. He could have announced himself in so many ways that he picked a humble, ordinary body of a carpenter so that it would take the Holy Ghost to see it. Did people have written oracles? Yes. Could they understand them? No. Some things are simply spiritually discerned. In the West, we've tried to intellectually discern them. We've tried to rationalize them. We've tried to ascend to them through reason and logic. And I do not put those things aside, but I tell you, they're holy and accurate. If you do not have the power of the Holy Ghost, you're blind. Spiritually speaking, you're groping about in the darkness no matter how much word you have. Have you ever noticed that the devil quotes the word with fluency? But he never properly interprets it, does he? Any surprise then that the devil is able to use religious men to wage wars for millennia because they cannot interpret the word. They say it's a square. No, it's a circle. And they miss the bigger picture that there was a whole other dimension God is pointing to. We fight hundred-year wars over transubstantiation and the wording of John 6. We murder countless people over what method you baptize in. Maybe we are missing a bigger picture. I'd like to talk to you about visible images. Is that okay? Colossians 1, 15 through 16. See, this reminded me of your family for some reason. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the what? Image of the invisible. Is that a paradoxical statement? You want to know what that realm is like. You want to know what it looks like to walk with extra perception. You know what it is to not be trapped in Flatville, but have a 4D awareness of the creation? It looks like Jesus. And how did Jesus do it? It's an amazing thing about men in the Bible. I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's, it put optometrists out of business. Samson loses his eyes and suddenly he can see his purpose. Jesus had eyes that worked perfectly well, but he chose not to use them. Read with me John 5. <coughs> Might we say that the reductionist standing in Flatville, his eyes are lying to him? 
Oh, he sees what the escalationist sees. But his eyes tell him what I see is all there is. Listen to the way Jesus said this in John 5, starting in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Before I move from this, is it true that we're not supposed to break the Sabbath? Yes. It's a command given to Israel. Is it true that these men were not to break the Sabbath? Please answer me. Yes. Okay, we have a circle. Is it true that we're supposed to do good to our fellow man to love our neighbor? Does not Leviticus 17 tell us that? We have a rectangle. What happens when do not work on the Sabbath conflicts with doing good to our neighbor? How do we reconcile a circle and a rectangle? It can't be done. They're mutually exclusive. And then comes Jesus, who can see into a dimension they cannot see. And he says, you don't understand. You're not getting it. Why don't you stop your interpretation for a minute and do what I do. Set your natural eyes aside for a second. My father's always at work, he said. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Would you call that poverty of spirit? You could say Jesus was a mindless automaton, except he was not mindless. He simply chose to have his father's mind. He chose to have his father's will. When he had a will that was different than his father's in the garden, he expressed it and then submitted his to the father's. Oh my goodness. We are right back in the garden, even in the New Testament. You said we have an Old Testament, we have a New Testament. How is this any different than Adam and Eve looking at a tree of knowledge of good and evil? Is the tree itself bad? But even if you tell a man what is good and evil, he does not have the ability to choose what is right. What if he could just ignore it for a little while and say, Father, what would you have me to do? I'm not fit to make these decisions. I would submit to you that you are supposed to know the word. You should absorb it. You should read it. I challenge you to read it as much as I do. But if the Holy Ghost doesn't show you how to apply it, it will become a sword in the hand of an infant. And you will set out to chop up your family, to chop up other churches, to chop up anybody that you can find. And it is as careless as giving an M16 to a child. But let the Holy Ghost come in and you will be like a Holy Ghost sniper. From a long distance, you will make shots that you could have never made. You will understand things that are so far beyond your comprehension. You will innately know them, sense them, feel them long before you can explain them or prove them. How important is it that we have the power of the Holy Ghost? This goes beyond circles and rectangles and right into cylinders, friends. We need that extra dimension. Without it, we are helpless. Oh, my friends, why don't we move forward? Heavenly navigation. 
John 15, uh, that's wrong. That's John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world is stuck in Flatville. By the way, have any of you seen wind? You can answer me out loud. Be brave. Have you seen electricity? Have you seen sound? But you can see their effects on everything, can't you? The fact that you cannot see it, does it mean it does not exist? If you would like to challenge that, I dare you to stick your finger in that electric socket and what you cannot see will light you up like a Christmas tree. I don't think we have an atheist among us tonight, but I give you the same challenge. Stick your finger into the very premise of God, and He will light you up like a Christmas tree. We won't be arguing any longer about whether or not He exists. I challenge you to ask Him. Be so brave as to call Him out. He will light you up like a Christmas tree. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as what is the lowest member of society in this time? What is the most helpless thing that you can possibly imagine but an orphaned child? Someone who has been with Jesus three and a half years. Someone who has performed miracles. Someone who has seen the widow named son raised from the dead. Someone who has walked on water. Someone who has had a heavenly revelation is an absolute orphan without the power of the Holy Ghost. We, we've emphasized salvation and sonship to the point that we might not understand how desperately we need the power of the Holy Ghost. Without Jesus' atoning work at Calvary, it is not possible to receive the Holy Ghost. He said, unless I go, He won't come. But if I go, the Father will send a counselor to you. Why don't we look at that? Turn to John 16. Is that okay? Are you bored with me? In John 16, pick up in verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. How would you know if the Holy Ghost was convicting someone of sin? So I can tell. I can tell by the posture, Pastor. I can tell by the look on their face. Some of you believe that you're discerning enough to look across the room, see a look on a person's face, and know what is in their heart. Without the power of the Holy Ghost, you don't know whether they have indigestion or they're angry. You don't. But with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost can lighten you. You must never mix those two things. Your perception and the Holy Ghost's perception. Your eyes will lie to you, but the Holy Ghost never will. He is the spirit of truth. I've had more people look at me angrily, clenched fists, and found out they were simply crushed in their spirit and needed to be loved. I could have never perceived it, but the Holy Ghost showed me. We are blind. We have no navigator. 
without the Holy Spirit. We often argue with Him. He nudges you and we say, ah, you know, if you do this, then I will. Or, let me go check with everyone else first. Does the pilot get to argue with the air traffic controller? The air traffic controller says, make your altitude this, make your speed this. Does the pilot say no? If he does, he won't be a pilot at all. Can you imagine coming into a runway? You're making your descent. You're slowing your speed. You're at the edge of a stall because that's how you land the plane. And you see trees. And the air traffic controller says, lower your plane 10 more feet. And you're like, but I see trees. I see trees. You can't see the plane above you. The one that's about to hit you if you don't obey. And he can't. You can't. How about we just... Leave the obstructions to the Holy Ghost and we obey His instruction. Would that be okay? Yeah. If we could just obey Him, friends, we would become the most effective Christians on the planet. Yeah. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I love that verse. You can say it again. He now stands condemned. Yeah. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Can you imagine being so confident in the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you say, I couldn't teach you more now, but I decided to let Him do it? It'd immediately make our sermon shorter, wouldn't it? Oh, what a test of faith, Matthew. He speaks only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belong to the Father is mine. That is why I say that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. What will the Holy Spirit do? He will make it known to you. Amen. He will make the truths of God knowable, understandable, obtainable, applicable to you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. More than a program, more than a good plan, more than administration, more than any other thing. We need the power of the Spirit. If you listen to last Wednesday's message, the best I've ever heard. I'm still hearing reports from Arkansas about it, from Louisiana about it. The best message I've ever heard. If you listen to it and came away with any idea other than you need the power of the Holy Spirit, you missed it. Oh, poverty of spirit will cause you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be in right standing with God means He can pour His presence in you. We need it more than any other thing. We don't need more buildings, more sound systems, more money. We need the Holy Spirit. We would misuse our buildings, our sound systems, and our money. We misuse it all. We need it, friends. We need Him. We need Him. We need Him. Amen. What else can we say? We need Him. Amen. Let us move forward. There's a natural man, there's a spiritual man, and then there is the mind of Christ. We are winding down our message, but you should not miss this point. Let us go to 1 Corinthians. You'll be in the second chapter. Tay there when you're there. Don't anybody back out. Don't anybody decide that your fingers are too tired to learn the truth of God's Word. Let us not insult the Holy Ghost who is as real 
in this room is the air you are breathing. In the second chapter, starting in the ninth verse, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. I've often talked about how untrue this is. And in many ways it is untrue because I know how the verse ends. But let's just stop there for a minute and consider the truth of the Scripture. Your eye is not capable of understanding what God has prepared. Your ear is not capable of hearing what God has prepared. Your mind is not capable of grasping what God has prepared for you. So that we find the apostles saying things like, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that you have power to grasp, they say. They are fully aware of how broken the human condition is without the power of the Spirit. Or do we need the Holy Ghost? But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You mean the theologians don't know the thoughts of God? But they've written volumes, Lord. If they wrote outside the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, then those volumes are about as useful as our paper towels. Read some of them. Did you know that what is called the Big Kittle, some people refer to it as Little Kittle if they don't buy all of the volumes, was commissioned by the Nazis and yet is in every seminary library around the world? Man's a Greek scholar beyond belief. He's also an anti-Semite. Extraordinaire. Without the power of the Holy Ghost, we're salt water, friends. It's not fit to be drunk. It burns the eyes and offends the senses. Unless, of course, you're made of that substance. I'd like to tell you that a child operating in the power of the Holy Ghost is perfectly capable, perfectly anointed, perfect. But our brightest intellects what the world considers our greatest hopes are as powerless as children without the Holy Spirit. That we could depend on Him. That we could know our need for Him. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we may understand what He has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. He's a reductionist. I can't see the Spirit, so the Spirit is unimportant. My hands made this man. My strength accomplished these things. It's mine. They live in the world that they can see. And I'm straining to live in the world that I cannot see. 
He chose the lowly things of this world. That's the wrong verse. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? What's that last phrase say? But we have the mind of Christ. Does saying we have the mind of Christ mean you have the mind of Christ? About as much as positional righteousness makes you righteous. By the way, I do believe in positional righteousness. I believe that if you understand where you are at in the Lord, you will change your position and He will make you righteous. You will strain for Him. You will yearn for Him. And you could never earn the position. He will credit it to you based on your trust. Have the mind of Christ. We might have the mind of Jerry Seinfeld or Elvis Presley or Britney Spears, but do we have the mind of Christ? How do you get such a thing? You have to start from understanding that you do not have it unless he gives it to you. What a shrewd thing the devil did with our theologians to tell you you got it the moment you were born again. What a shrewd thing he did. You would never know the great need. You would think that operating by mere natural instinct would be all there was. It would be more than enough. There's always been this kind. They didn't mean to. They had good intentions. They operated in their senses. And like brute beasts split churches. Slandered <coughs> celestial beings. And became springs without water. Clouds without rain. Jude wrote about them. Peter wrote about them because they've always been in church and I was one of them. I could quote verses I could never live. I could quote them and tell you what others said about them and maybe even get the technical definitions right. But I had no power to grasp them in my inner man until the Holy Ghost rushed into my life. And then what was putrid and foul and unfit for anything that was good Jesus made it clean. And the spirit of Jesus inhabited me. Oh my goodness. I don't know if we have a pregnant woman in the room. For yet, Teresa, raise your hand. You may not be able to see another life in her. But there's no hurt beating inside. There's no mind being formed. And it is fully matured. It's capable of changing the world. Oh, Jesus, that Christ could be formed. This led the apostles in Ephesians 3. Oh, well, that's small. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. It's almost as if it's in four dimensions, and you're only capable of understanding. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
It's not enough to know the love of God. You must be filled with Him. Amen. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within the theologian. His power that is at work within us. Within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Glory Amen. Amen. Glory a Dios. Church, if you didn't get one other thing, if rectangles don't do it for you, if circles don't do it for you, if I didn't impress you with my terrasat, if the nebula didn't strike your imagination, you have to know that that apostle could have written to you anything. He could have prayed for you anything. And it's one hope was that you would understand the multifaceted, multidimensional love of the Lord and then be filled with Him to the fullness of God Himself. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty limitless well. It's almost, Joel, like you could drink your whole life and never get it all. So you're charismatic, praise God. You got sprinkled. I thirst for more. And I pray you'll thirst with me. Because as I've dwelt on these messages that have been preached lately, it's clear to me that it doesn't matter how many people get healed in here. It doesn't matter how many get saved in here. It doesn't matter how many chairs we fill in here. I'm utterly bankrupt without the presence of God. I'm utterly unsatisfied without the presence of God. And my life is utterly meaningless without the presence of God. A man recently told me his one aspiration was to do ministry as cleanly as possible for the rest of his life. There's only one way we can do it, friends. If it's left to us, we will be selfish. We will fight over rectangles and squares. But if it's left to the Holy Ghost, it will work in heavenly proficiency. And we'll be able to say, Thy kingdom come, and it will. Stand to your feet.